Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It's been a great pleasure to welcome back to Viewpoints uh, Adam Voigt, who's the founder and director of Real Schools. Uh, welcome again to Viewpoints, Adam Voigt. Lovely to be here again, Henry. Good to, good to be chatting all things education again. Absolutely. Now, Real Schools, just for those people who are not quite as familiar mm. with it as they should be, Adam, tell us a bit about yep. Real Schools. So Real Schools, I started Real Schools in 2012, and it's a, a company determined to help uh, each individual school, and indeed, probably Australia schools really, put school culture at the top of our uh, school improvement agenda. So our firm belief is that if we can create cultures where key stakeholders, for instance, our staffs, our parent communities and our students, if we can create cultures where they thrive, then we give our programs and our goals and our objectives a chance to succeed. And um, we would like to bring a bit more of that sort of success and that interpersonal success back to schools and allow allow our educators to focus on what really matters. So we work in long-term partnerships in a multitude of different ways with our schools and we're, we're wrapped with the progress that they make. Now, you were a principal and teacher yourself once upon mm. a time. Why did you leave the profession from that in that in that angle? Yeah, it was probably the – I still remember even the night before I sort of walked in and resigned from being a principal and my wife, you know, talking to me about, are you sure about this because you love your job? <laughs> and, and I did. I, I, I genuinely loved um, loved my job. But I, I probably am a bit of a – in some ways a bit of an influence junkie. And um, I love the idea of being able to uh, help people – to be able to have a bigger impact and um, the next step from being a principal was kind of either into the bureaucracy um, where I felt that I maybe wouldn't be able to have the influence that I could um, or to stepping into creating something that could help schools have the impact and to be able to focus on the stuff that they, they really know matters. So I guess from a professional point of view, it was about trying to spread the word about what I'd discovered about leading and working from not only from the principal's office, but from the classroom. And um, and from a personal opportunity, it was really about being able to you know, work in a different way, uh, take on a different challenge and, um, and just kind of see what I could do if I gave myself the license to do it. Mm. Now, with the benefit of some hindsight, looking back, great decision, good decision, poor decision. Oh, yeah, I always say that, um, and people often ask me because I kind of know the know my nature, I suppose. You know, people often ask what, what I miss about working um, in my own school, so to speak. And that's fair enough because I guess a lot of people saw me really love working in my own school. And I've always said that the thing that I miss most is, um, is being a part of a team. So the fact that we sort of started out as, you know, kind of a, a one-man band and then came, had a little bit of administrative help. And now we have directors working with schools all over Australia. We have a, a director in charge of school and teacher wellbeing. Um, and so the work that's happening there is um, now wonderful. I'm part of a team again. And leading that team is just so exciting. So it's been it's been a decision that, you know, I still love getting the chance to work in our schools and that's part of our model. But um, but it's been – I'm really glad that I made the decision because every day I know that there's dozens of schools all over Australia that are getting help because of what we're doing. Mm, absolutely true. I can endorse that uh, from what I know of people who are working with you, Adam. Now, 
just on a year ago, you wrote a piece, Self-Care with Adam Voigt. Is your glass half full or half empty? And you used a quote from Helen Keller, optimism is the, is the faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope and confidence. Looking back 12 months, uh, uh, back on when you wrote that, um, how do you feel about where we are now compared to there? Yeah, it's been it's been an extraordinary journey, hasn't it, really, the last 12 months? And I do think that when I, you know, I'm often, I guess, sort of as we've started to emerge from the, the coronavirus malaise, I've been asking when I run sessions with school leaders, asking, you know, what have we learned? You know, when all of this is over, um, we will have discovered that I kind of create the little close exercise of the gap was the most important thing all along. And people are saying things like connection, well-being and achievement. And I think we, if we're able to, to say, you know what, we, we actually learned a really valuable lesson that a lot of the work that we're doing um, is around the edges of that, but not right at it, then we can say, you know what, we're going to create classrooms where young people connect. We're going to create classrooms where young people achieve and where their emotions don't stop them from achieving. So I've, had a lot of, I've asked a lot of teachers, um, have you had a child unexpectedly thrive through online, online learning? And nearly everyone has. And I've asked, what do you think that's about? And we've said, we've sort of come to a conclusion that for a lot of these students, the online learning environment reduced shame for them. And what we mean is that you could do the right thing as a teacher in a classroom. And when a student does well on an activity who doesn't usually do well, you, know, you can say, that's fantastic. I'm so proud of the way you worked. Um, I'm delighted with you know what you've done for me today. Um, and the teacher's done absolutely the right thing, but they turn their back and that kid looks at a, a, a student's work next to them and sees that they've did, done that student's done it quicker. They see a student to the other side of them that's done it better. They might see another student across the table sort of putting their fingers to their forehead in the shape of an L to say that you're a bit of a loser. Yeah, and they're immediately back in shame, but that doesn't happen in the online environment. So I've had some really rich conversations with teachers recently about how do we reduce the shame of students being in the classroom such that they they genuinely thrive off the the positive feedback and encouragement they get from teachers and teachers are, are coming up with some really you know, clever innovations to do that. So I think there's so much to learn from the the interruptions that we've had, particularly in Victorian schools. Um, and I think that when we talk about that half glass half full and that achievement focus and how that is what we're focusing on here, we're not talking about fake platitudes and filling a bucket because you're being told that you're nice. Um, what we are doing is saying, let's fill that bucket with achievement and let's let our students almost get addicted to that achievement as, um, as a way of moving forward for them. Hmm. Now, it, you mentioned you mentioned uh, children and remote learning and some of the conditions mm. there. You wrote a piece not long ago in the Herald Sun, the 15th of seconds, kids will be learning a lot more than we think. That got yep. a mixed reception, and I'll quote one of the people who disagreed <laughs> with you, I'm sure you know it, uh, Lyle Gaya from Essendon, in, in a letter to the paper a day or two later said, and I'll just quote a bit of it, for such an experienced former principal, that's you, to defend your Yet another draconian Victorian lockdown on the basis that children deprived of their normal classroom setting, their respected teacher, and most importantly their beloved peer group will prosper, is short-sighted and unbelievably naive. To Lyle's credit, they're, 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 they're pretty blunt in their assessment of your piece. Uh, you might yep. like to talk about that. 
<laughs> that's all right. I, and look, I'll just—I appreciate Lyle's comments. I, I don't have any—I um, don't know Lyle or have any sort of axe to grind with what he's got to say there. What I will say is that if you look back on our own childhoods and we ask them, were there any like acute lessons that came up? Were there any moments that taught us lessons? They're often lessons that are associated with unexpected crisis or big changes. And what we do in those moments is we look around to see how people lead. We look around to see how people connect. We look around to see how people behave and conduct themselves in those circumstances. So yes, I agree. We'd rather have our students in the classroom. But the notion that our kids are falling behind at some ridiculous accelerated rate and plummeting to a level where they're going to be in the future wandering around bumping into poles because they were educated in the age of coronavirus, you know, I think is a gross overreaction. And I think what we need to do is to realise that, for instance, in that snap lockdown, which is was a five-day period, you know, um, so it was five days. And really for our students, it was kind of three days that they weren't at school. Um, they did learn in that time and they were watching adults and they were watching the way that we that we conducted ourselves in a crisis and that's going to arm them for the future uh, we know that young people are going to know that we, we, we don't know a lot of the skills we don't know a lot of the um, technicalities and knowledge that they're going to need to be successful in the future but we do know that the jobs that are likely to be left behind for us for our students when they grow up are the human jobs you know, nobody wants a robot looking after grandma. Nobody wants a robot looking after um, their two-year-old in childcare. So it's the human jobs that are going to be left behind. And the fact that our students have had a little lesson here in the way that the humans conduct themselves under pressure, that's not a bad thing. That's not a terrible thing. So I don't think we need to overreact. And I certainly, uh, while I might believe that it's a, it was a draconian response by the Victorian government, I, I don't place myself as an epidemiologist. I don't know whether it's draconian, whether it's over the top, whether it's appropriate or whether it's not enough. Um, but I am really happy to say that in that period, our kids did learn some things and we should be conscious of that. It leads us to something which is a topic that, you know, we've all probably flogged to death, but it's, you do mention it in here and it's worth talking about and the, and the pandemic has certainly put this on the agenda. I'll just quote you from your piece, Adam. Many of us bemoan the lack of resilience in young people these days, yet trends towards helicopter parenting styles rob our kids of the chance to hone an ability to thrive despite risk. This week is just mm. such an opportunity. Uh, you might like to just uh, talk about that topic a bit. So I think that it is important to talk about resilience, that we've got, first of all, some idea what it is we're talking about. And I think that it was an Andrew Fuller uh, definition that I've um, borrowed and adopted that notion of thriving despite risk. So the ability to be resilient is to do well, even though it's hard to do well, even though something comes out of the blue, even though there's a barrier or a border to you being able to do well, that you get over it and you find a way to, to keep going. And we keep teaching our students about resilience in schools, which means that we give them some definition of being able to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and get back on the horse. Uh, we get them to make a poster about it. A lot of schools adapt, uh, adopt resilience as a value for their school and they make a mural out of it in the hope that these sort of formal constructs will somehow trickle down onto our students. If they walk past a resilience mural, they'll become more resilient. They don't. Um, you become more resilient by actually thriving despite risk. And that means that as schools, we probably should create environments where our students experience some risk. And this goes to the age notion of you know, being able to, even teachers being able to differentiate the curriculum to put kids in that 
narrow window between too hard and too easy. And when moments like these come along, that we have a, a snap five-day lockdown in Victoria because of a, a global pandemic, um, there is an opportunity to say, hey, say, all right, we've all got a little bit of a barrier in front of us here. Um, how are we going to get over it? How are we going? To, how are we going to? How are we going to still do well? How are we going to thrive despite this risk? And you can't learn that by learning about it. You've got to get through it. You've got to. You've got to find your way through it. And this is arming our kids to say, "Well, I got through that." You know, I found it fascinating. Even I've done. I've been able to finally do a little bit of travel to our schools around Australia. And everywhere I go outside Victoria, everyone says, "You know, kind of, how are you? <laughs> you know, have you been able to get through um, the the last, you know, the last year?" And the prevailing um, dynamic that I've sort of noticed amongst Victorians when that when the five day problem came along was oh that's all right you know we did fourteen weeks you know we we can do five but you know everyone else is sort of losing their minds over it and and it's because we thrive despite a really immense difficulty in that fourteen weeks so we can do five we can do five days no problem and that's the attitude that we want our young people to take to academic problems, we want them to take it to social problems, we want them to take it to personal problems, we want them to take it to mental health problems. And if they can do that, then we're, we're, we, we might actually get to a point where we stop whinging about young people lacking resilience because we gave them the chance to build it. Now, it's an interesting point you make because one of the things, and, and I, I think it, it leads the trend towards overprotection at all levels is, and it makes sense, risk management. Risk management in organisations, risk management is front and centre for so many things that uh, maybe at times we get to the point of risk uh, aversity in every area, yeah. Adam. I think so. I think that, and I, I couldn't agree with you more on that, Henry. I think it's actually one of the, <laughs> oddly, one of the risks we face in education. Is The truth is when we talk about risk management in our schools, we're talking about risk prevention. And that's not what risk management should be about. We should be in schools innovating. We should be um, launching, like scientists do, hypothesis. Going, what do you reckon? If we did this, what sort of a result do you think we'll get? And we may not get a great result, but we learn something from that. And we put ourselves in a position where we're unafraid to try something new. And um, like I would contend that <laughs> I would contend that the education sector ignores its own research better than any other sector in the world, <laughs> you know, um, because we're we're so frightened to 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 do something risky. We're so frightened to change something because what if it goes wrong? Well, what if it does? You know, what's the what's the worst that happens other than you know we learn something valuable and we get to build some institutional resilience, and it's what we want for our kids. I think it's maybe time that we modelled that from. Um, as lifelong learners. Yeah, it's a good point. And we put so much value on certain examinations that uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I talk sometimes to parents who've got VCE students and, and I shudder when I hear them say, oh my God, I've got my VCE year. And the parents are going through incredible anxiety on behalf of yeah. their children. That can't be good for the kids. No, and, and it's also, I mean, it's, it's not only not good for the kids, it's not good for performance. So we don't think about what's good for performance when it comes to even our year 12 students and our year 12 kids. You know, what's good for them is to be in a great mental state by the end of the year when they have to do their exams or when they're doing their sacks across the year. Um, so what are we doing to get them into a good mental state? And is smashing them with remembering as many quotes as they can from a Shakespearean text the right way to put them in a great mental state to perform? Um, I'd probably say no. And that's something that we can... Um, 
that we can look at from a you know a systemic point of view. So right across the year, we can be thinking about how do we put these kids in a great state? How do we put even for ourselves, our staff members in a great state so that we can do our best work rather than just thinking about what's the next thing to do? Mm. You mentioned uh, our staff in, in a great state. The other side of the equation, obviously, is um, teacher resilience, teacher well-being, and mm. um, that's had that's had an interesting impact across the board across the system. Now I know that's an area you're very interested in. You're innovative. You're you're working in that space in in the coming months, aren't you? Yeah, we're in, we're incredibly interested in this, and I think that there's a lesson to be learned here. And this is out of some research that our uh, associate director Amy Green has done, where she's looked into what are the challenges behind staff and teacher wellbeing and school wellbeing, and how have we been tackling those challenges? And effectively, what she's found is that one, we have a situation where one staff member is often responsible, usually a school leader, maybe an assistant principal who's even got it on their badge for for school wellbeing, and that means that. They kind of, because they're busy themselves with other responsibilities, they default to event-based approaches. So we look around and if everyone's a bit stressed, then we're going to order some hot chips and some cake and we're going to have a nice morning tea and everyone's going to feel better for a little while. And they do. It's a really it's a really nice feeling while you're eating hot chips and cake, well, I reckon anyway. Yes. Um, but it doesn't actually address the causes of why people were frazzled, why people's well-being was being impa- impacted. And one of the issues when we have one person responsible for it is that we kind of create this dynamic where teachers start to feel that if my well-being's low, someone else is not doing their job you know, because they're responsible for my well-being. So Amy's work is about looking at how we can build collective responsibility, how we can create habits around self-care, and she's looked into five different domains of self-care. She's building teacher wellbeing partnerships that we've got several schools around Australia implementing at the moment who are saying, you know what, we, we the most powerful thing we can do in terms of results is put our teachers in a better state. You know, and um, and she's actually we're actually launching in the next couple of months a teacher wellbeing app where teachers don't need to wait for the hot chips to arrive. Um, they can sit down at any time, open the app, decide which area of self-care they want to attend to, and they can say, do I want to watch something? Do I want to read something? Do I want to listen to something? And they'll be supported around the work. Um, and this really is about for us so how, how we can be more effective uh, teachers who feel like we're making progress in our work and we have the energy to make even more of it. And... Um, it's for me. I've I've loved watching Amy develop this work because it's um for me quite Machiavellian, and I reckon it's going to make a massive difference in Australian schools mm, and teacher well-being and principal well-being. Where all the research shows that uh, that's an area that ought to be of great concern to all of us, Adam. Yeah, I agree, and I think what should like parallel be of concern is that the efforts we're putting into it aren't getting the return we're looking for. So we're, we're missing the mark when it comes to well-being and self-care. And one of the first things to recognise is that well-being and self-care aren't the same. You know, um, so it's about well-being is the state, you know, and self-care are the acts that allow us to get into that state. And if we can actually start to target those areas more effectively um, around the things that, that negatively impact our state, then we can keep our people in a mentally well space and as a result keep them performing optimally which is I think just and when I think about my back to my time as a principal if I thought that I had a way of supporting my people to be at their very best when they walk in every day that's something I'm interested in. Absolutely as always uh, Adam time gets away from us before we can cover as many topics as we like Uh, it's been a great pleasure chatting with people want to get in touch with you and look up some of your resources etc how would they do that? 
So the best way is always to go to the website. So we've got a brand new website, Henry. It's very clean and easy to navigate. And so we're very excited about that too. So it's just realschools.com.au. And um, if they want to get in touch with us, the easy email is info at realschools.com.au. Um, and, uh, and we'll take it from there and make sure that we have a chat about how we can make a difference at your school. Absolutely. And uh, as always, thank you for your time. And as I've said to you off air on more than one occasion, Adam, um, you're a breath of fresh air in our profession and uh, we certainly need more of that. Thank you so much. I appreciate those kind words, Henry. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me on the program. Always good to have a chat. My pleasure. That was Adam Voigt, founder and director of Real School, someone who's doing some real work in our space. We'll take a short break. Listeners, don't go away. <laughs> 